Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. Here's what we're reading and learning this week. We had some elections and normally I wouldn't have any reason to share U.S. election results on Ufahamu Africa, but there are a couple of races that I'd like to bring to the attention of our listeners. In Iowa City, Iowa on Tuesday, community organizer Mazahir Sala won the at-large seat on the city council. Sala is Iowa City's first Sudanese-American council member and also likely the first Sudanese-American person elected to governmental office in the United States. According to Majid Khalifa, a board member of the Sudanese-American Public Affairs Association. During her campaign, Sala talked about issues facing low-income residents in Iowa City, focusing in particular on expanding affordable housing, improving local transportation, and promoting quality jobs. Congratulations, Councilwoman-elect Sala. In neighboring Nebraska, Wilmot Collins won the mayoral election in Helena, defeating the four-term incumbent mayor. Collins came to Montana 20 years ago as a refugee from Liberia. He is the first black person to be elected mayor of any city in Montana. For the record, Montana has the smallest proportion of black people of any state in the U.S. Less than 1% of Montana's population is black. These two are just a reminder that immigrants can make America great, contrary to what my president may say. Talking about presidents, next week, Somaliland will hold presidential elections. The Monkey Cage has a pre-election report worth reading for those who are unfamiliar with the politics of Somaliland. No state recognizes Somaliland's independence from Somalia, which considers the breakaway state an autonomous region. We learn in the pre-election report that unlike Somalia, Somaliland has a long history of elections and peaceful leadership transitions. There's every expectation that Monday's election will also lead to a peaceful transition. On Monday morning, I'll post links to what I've mentioned here as well as bonus links to our website, ufamuafrica.com. This week's episode features a conversation with Boniface Mwangi, an award-winning photojournalist and political activist. Mwangi recently ran to be a member of parliament in Sturehe constituency, which is in Nairobi, Kenya's capital city. Thanks to the efforts of friend of the podcast, Dr. Chipo Dendere, Mwangi recently visited the Pioneer Valley to give a lecture at Amherst College. While he was here, I sat down with him and asked about his recent campaign for office and about his book, Unbounded, which features stories about his life juxtaposed with a sample of some of his amazing photography. In addition to being sold in Kenya, Unbounded is currently available in the U.S. via Amazon.com. You can find more details on how to get your copy of Unbounded on our website. So thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa. Uh, Like nearly a million other people, I follow you on Twitter, and this was one of the ways I came to know about your work as a photographer and as an activist. So can I start with asking you to share how you became a photographer? It's a long journey. At the age of 14, I was... I was in high school and there was issues in my school and I wanted to document that. I went to see the minister and the minister told me that he needs evidence of the complaints that I had. And I went and told my mother that I must compile some evidence for the minister and my mother said, how do you want to do that? And I told her, how about if I go and take pictures? And that is the first time that I took pictures at the age of 14. But I became a photographer when I was about 20, 21, when I went to school to study photojournalism. Mm-hmm. I, I chose to do photojournalism because I saw the impact of pictures. It's very instantaneous. You freeze a moment and the moment can make a difference. Mm-hmm. 
I realized that when you when you people I know times have changed. Uh, in my days, there's no Photoshop and many other things. They're not as common as they are today. So I knew that if you need to tell a story, you could tell that using pictures, and that's how I became a photographer. I thought if there's an issue, like an injustice or anything that was happening in my community, mm-hmm. I could take a picture and I could make a difference. And I remember that when I started as a photographer, people loved my the the, the realness of my pictures. Yeah. It was like everyday life in the slums. Yeah. And the, I was able to make impact using photography. I think yeah. that's the long and short story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I remember one of your award-winning photographs was of a child sitting on a mat uh, in front of a, a, a pool of water, and there are camels in the background. And, yeah. Uh, there's so much. It's interesting that you talk about this, you know, to, to have evidence and to tell a story. You know, it's just one photograph, but it really does tell a, a bigger story about access to clean water and about... Um, the innocence of childhood and, and also about a way of life, right? That, you know, you imagine his family are probably camel herders, right? That there's uh, living a pastoralist life. I mean, um, but also just a beautiful picture. You true, know, very true. If you look at the skies wo- in the background. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the world today, I think images have more impact than anything else mm-hmm. right now in the world that we live in now because people are pretty busy, they have no time to read. It's a world of 140 characters, so yeah. <laughs> so I think a picture makes a lot of difference when it's uh, when it's original and it's not photoshopped. Yeah. yeah. Now your powerful photos and your activism for social justice are chronicled in your recent book, Unbounded. Can you tell our listeners more about Unbounded and how you decided to make the book? So I've done a couple of books before of my pictures, but I only tell my story because every time I meet people, they say, "How did you become a photographer?" Uh, why are you so brave? What what inspires you? What is your background? How mm-hmm. did you do that? And I thought I should tell my story that I'm a I'm the grandson of a freedom fighter. My mother my mother grew up in the in the British camps where they've been like they've been rounded up during colonization. And so the book begins in nineteen forty seven when my my grandparents got married, then five years later my grandfather was jailed for six years by the British government. And through the colonial struggle, it's a story about modern-day Kenya through my eyes mm. and through my pictures. So I have a bit about twenty percent of the pictures actually are from the family album, from my grand my grandmother's pictures, my mother's photos, me growing up, mm-hmm. what inspired me, and I try to tell the story of Kenya from the for the last fifty-four years. I using my my background and my grandparents as the backbone of the story. Mm-hmm. So it's a story about. Um, how what defines me as a person, mm-hmm. and uh, how Kenya and the story of like modern day Kenya, how right. we, how what has happened in the last fifteen years, the story that I've covered, mm-hmm. and the historical context. So it actually gives people an idea to see that I did not just happen. I'm a product of a process. Right. right. Now you recently went from activist to politician. Uh, in the parliamentary elections in Kenya in August, you ran for a seat in parliament to represent Sturahe constituency. What did you learn in running for political office and having some time to reflect? What do you think you would have done differently? And what advice might you give to other activists um, who who want to run for political office because they also want to affect change from inside of government? Well, uh, running, for <laughs> running for office is very tough. I It was... It was one of the toughest things that I've ever done. Um, 
I think voters, my, my experience is that voters are very ignorant about what they want. And they, that's the world over. I just say it's not. It's probably not limited to Storey constituency uh, or to Kenyan politics. We we suffer a lot of ignorance among voters and, and they don't around the world. They don't vote for their best interest. I, no, I think not I, I was shocked that there's a lot of ignorance among voters. That was the shocking part. Mm. I also would have, I don't think there's anything I could have done different. I ended up having arguments with the voters while I was campaigning. Mm. I would go to campaign and instead of uh, instead of me asking for their votes, I would just tell them to shut up and listen to me. <laughs> it, it became like an education lesson. I said, I'm going to teach you for free. I'm going to give you mm. free advice. Mm. You don't have to vote for me. I used to tell voters, no, forget about you voting for me. I don't even need your vote. But please listen to me. Mm. And I would try and explain to them how their vote is their power and how when they vote, it should make a difference and mm-hmm. how it matters. And they did not hear me. For anyone who wants to buy for elective office, I think activism and politics are two different worlds. Yeah. In activism, you have to be very logical, you have to be very factual, uh, and it's it's one plus one equals two. When it comes to politics, it's more heart than head. Mm. There's no logic in how people vote. Mm. It's more passion. Mm. And people do not vote because they, they see reason in you. They vote because... Somebody in the heart says, let me vote for this guy. And mm. it's more it's more gut mm. than head. And that's that's very hard. It's a, it's a different game altogether. So if you want to run for office and you're an activist, build a movement mm-hmm. to take it there. Mm. Uh, most countries, the voter register as it is right now doesn't work for anyone. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to vie for elective offices as an activist... Try and get your own people on the register. Mm-hmm. Get get people to re- be registered to vote for you. Get go and that movement. Let the movement take you to parliament or take you to power. Not the other way around. I think I began late in my campaign, so mm-hmm. I think if I if I started much much earlier with this big Twitter following and Facebook following, I should have gotten my people or the people who follow me and who believe in me to register as voters in Starehe. Right. So as a young activist who wants to get into elective office wherever you're in the world, I think it's important that you get the voter register right. Yeah. Because if you don't have voters, then you have likes online. Likes don't get you elected. No. Uh, the Twitter and Facebook is not a polling station. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is one thing that I think a lot of people forget, right, that um, voter registration is really important. And in in um, in Kenya and, and in many other African nations, you have to register very early, you know, True. long before the election. And so long before campaigns begin, they're already registering people to vote. I mean, there, in fact, are rules about when campaigns are allowed to begin, and sometimes it's not until after the registration process. So it's an interesting hurdle to, to identify, for, for especially for people who are new to, to political um political races. And then you need to raise money. I think money money plays a very critical role. You're not going to bribe anyone. But logistics costs money. You need to have a campaign team. You need to have billboards. You need to advertise. You need transportation. You need security. You need airtime. So money is also important. Yeah. Now, here in the U.S., and I imagine elsewhere in the West, the focus is on national politics in Kenya. Um, and, and of course, given the current controversies of the current national election, I can understand why a lot of people are focusing on that. But I wanted to ask you your opinion on how much the presidency matters. And um, more specifically, to what extent does the occupier of presidential office matter for the daily lives of ordinary Kenyans? 
the the presidency is very key in Kenya the president is um he's the one who implements the budget with his cabinet so yes you have separation of power and the budget will be passed in parliament but he's the implement of the budget which means that the cabinet allocates resources where they want to mm-hmm. uh there's a bit of devolution of power because of the county governments it's like the federal system but at the same time it's actually the national government that allocates the resources and mm-hmm. so the president decides where the money goes with his cabinet so it's very key if you're not if you're not on the president's team or if you did not vote for the president then if you realize that your your area or your community suffers from that right so the presidency is very key when you in the presidency it's uh, the kenyan system is winner takes it all so mm. when, he, when he's the president he takes it all then decides who is going to share power with and resources with mm-hmm. and so it's very important um i think but moving forward because of the devolution of power and we have in county governors I think it's going to become less and less powerful because now if you there's no Kenya is not at war at this particular moment is because of the county governments. Mm-hmm. Some counties are already going on with their own business. Some counties are already uh planning their budgets and saying this is what we're going to do for the next 5 years. But if the, if we had an election like we have right now where the outcome was was disputed as as, as it were and there was they said let's go back for re-election and there's no county governments Kenya would be banning. Right. The reason why Kenya is not banning is because of the a bit of decentralization where the county governments with their own governors mm-hmm. are going on with their own are going on with the the business of the county. Right. So basically also the president has a lot of uh sway in his in his words and in his powers. Mm-hmm. Uh he can say something even if it's not set on law it becomes like a law in itself because people say the president said this thing and and that comes from the days of dictatorship where the first and second president of a dictatorial and they had a lot of roadside declarations right and so you find sometimes even the roadside declaration of the president becomes um a semi law in the way things are done in the country yeah well that's not different from my own country where the yeah. president sends out a tweet and that becomes the way of that the way of the, the world yeah. and you find people doing very foolish things because the president said so yeah 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 So I want to ask you a question that was originally articulated by Vassar College political scientist Zachariah Mampili uh in a conference that we had uh earlier this year on decolonizing African studies. In the second half of this first season of Ufahamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer a question that Zachariah raised in episode 24 and he has six but I'll just ask you one. Mm-hmm. Um so what are the best approaches to understanding African political life? and how is this determined well i think so i don't i can't answer for the african political life mm-hmm. it's it's a very complex thing mm-hmm. you have north africa west africa east africa south africa and mm-hmm. all those politics are very different yeah zimbabwe and south africa are like day and night yeah and libya and egypt is like day and night yeah. then you go to french speaking senegal and you go to nigeria it's very different yeah And so it's very contextual. You need mm-hmm. to understand the politics of the particular nation at that particular time because it's very fluid at the same time. What so then so then let's ask if it's very contextual and and you have to understand the the context first. Let's take us to the context of Kenya. How would say someone who's naive to Kenyan politics, what would you say is a good starting place for them to begin to try to understand um Kenyan political life understand our colonial history were colonized by the british and then the tribe factor 
uh, the role that tribe plays in our daily politics. Kenya is Kenya, Kenya's biggest problem is not even corruption; it's tribalism, hmm. where tribe has become the word that divides the people and the one that halts the progress. That Kenya is stagnating because of tribalism. Hmm. Right now, even the, the 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 presidential issue that we have in the country is more tribe than ideological. Mm. And you find that even in the countries it were, we do not mobilize and organize around ideology, mm. we mobilize and organize around tribes. Mm. So under, if you understand tribes <coughs> and understand colonial baggage, then you, you get to know who we are as a country. But it's also very complex because every five years the, the game changes. But there's a fantastic book that I read mm-hmm. that I recommend to everyone. It's called Kenya by Daniel Branch, uh, Kenya Between Hope and Despair. And it's a, it's a fantastic book to understand Kenyan politics. So I, I'm going to go back to this um, this concern about tribalism in Kenyan politics. Do you see it playing out at the, on the street level? So, for example, like I, could, I, I, I can understand maybe at the national level when people line up behind a certain candidate, but what about in... The protests that you've participated in, do you see people forming along um, the lines of their ethnic groups or do you see much more integration in, in those kinds of street protests? So the protests that I do because of the following that I have mm-hmm. are not tribal. Right. It has all manner of people, young people, doctors, lawyers, mm-hmm. street traders, all manner of people. But when it comes to voting, people even vote along the tribal lines. You, you find your average Kenyan or your young Kenyan who's between 18 and 30 years old. They don't speak the vernacular language. They don't speak the tribe, their tribe's language. But when it comes to voting, they vote along tribal lines yeah. because they, they, they feel um, more, they identify themselves much more with their tribe. And I think tribe becomes a factor because the country lacks a national identity. And when a country lacks a national identity, you're very, you go back to the other identity that you know, and that becomes tribe. Right. Um, so but you don't see that in protests. So can, in, I mean, in protest, so when I it depends. It depends. It depends. It depends on the protest. It depends on the protest. If okay. it's a protest by the president's party, it's going to be a tribal affair. Okay. If it's a protest by the opposition leader, it's going to be a tribal affair because okay. it's. The tribe of the president protesting against something or for something, and then the tribe of the, the, the opposition leader doing the same thing. Right. So depending on the, what kind of a protest. Okay. So if it's a political protest organized by political parties, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a tribal affair. Okay. But if it's an issue then about extrajudicial killings, mm-hmm. salaries, or it's a strike, then right. the, the protest is very, it's very mixed. Right. Yeah. Like the nurses' strike, for example. Or the doctors' strike. Right. So it's the old tribes coming together to protest because it's an issue. You see now, that's an issue. They are, they're all... They, that's actually still identity because they are all nurses. So they come back to the identity of Amanas. Occupational I'm, identity. Yes. Uh, interesting. Um, so before we go, we normally ask mm. our guests about books they're reading right now or have read recently. Um, obviously, we're we're recommending your book Unbounded to our to our listeners. But I wonder if you have any book recommendations of anything that um, that you've read recently or or that you're reading right now. I'm actually reading Mao Zedong. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I just need to understand uh, the rise of China and the Communist Party. 
but if you were to ask me one book that I would highly recommend mm-hmm. uh, the the re- reinvention of Malcolm X the reinvention of Malcolm X by Man in Marable yeah. uh, I think it's a fantastic book uh, I agree great well thank you so much thank you this was enjoyable That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website, ufamuafrica.com. Find us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Government Department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kawia Aruna, Class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.